please remain standing with me and turn in your Bibles to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 15, um, starting with verse 1 and 2 and then skipping down to verse 11. This is probably the most famous of Jesus's parables. Um, we're going to camp out here uh, for the next couple weeks um, in uh, this parable of the prodigal son. This is, I'm convinced this is the parable that if you understand it, you'll understand the rest of the Bible. Um, you get the Bible wrong a lot, and you kind of, we need to recenter ourselves on this parable. So Luke chapter 15, starting with verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were draw, all drawing near to him, to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And then skip down to verse 11. And he said, Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. You may be seated. Would you pray with me one more time and ask God's blessing on his word preached? Lord, as we come to your word, we all are in need. None of us don't need you to break into our lives in new and fresh ways. We're all so broken that you are our only hope, Lord Jesus. And so, Unstop our ears, melt our hearts, give us eyes to see so that we could walk out of here amazed at your grace. If you would do this for us, then we would praise you. We would follow you. We would trust you. So please make it easy on us and draw near in power. We pray this in your name, our Savior. Amen. Well, if, you, um, if you're a Christian, 
Um, and I'm not going to assume that everyone in the room is a Christian. You're familiar with this parable. In fact, even if you're not a Christian, you probably know the basic contours of this parable. It is, as I said before, probably the most famous of Jesus' parables. But we're going to camp out here for a couple weeks because I think that most of us, whether you're on the outside or the inside of the church, I think that most of us probably find the way of Jesus fairly confusing. I mean, the, the Christian is supposed to have like, you know, this wide range of beliefs on everything, and everything is supposed to be as firm. You're supposed to have convictions about everything, convictions about politics and the latest cause of justice, and it's confusing. And then you look at your own life, and you're like, I'm barely able to manage my current responsibilities, let alone care enough about those things out there. I the demands of my job, my kids' schedule, the expectations of extended family, we just constantly feel behind. And then you add to that the layer of worry, financial worries, health worries, job worries, and it's exhausting. And then you come to church, and you're told, I need to start doing more things. Jesus promised a life in abundance, and we're drained, and if we're honest, we feel pretty beat down, not just by the world, at least by the world, but we can easily feel beat down within the walls of the church, too. I have a friend who calls this problem the problem with fangerwagon Christianity. Fangerwagon, it's with two A's. Fanger wagon. And the message of Fanger Wagon Christianity is you need to stop doing all the wrong things and start doing all the right things. And if that's all you know about Jesus, you'll never let him into the center of your life where you're just so broken that you can't find the, any way to stop doing the wrong things and start doing the right things. And he will always be at the periphery of your life. Because he's not safe enough. God's not safe enough to let into the real broken areas. And the gospel will cease to have the kind of power that Jesus promised it has. Because it will just remain a distant theory or a set of ideas. And not a person who comes near with gracious love enough to redeem the brokenness of my life. I want to do today is I want to deconstruct finger wagon Christianity. Because what Jesus is dealing with here is finger waggers. Look at verse 1 and 2. The Pharisees are critiquing Jesus for eating with sinners. Now the tax collectors and sinners, these are outsiders, right? These are the bad guys. These are the tax collectors and sinners, they're the bad guys in, in society, and they're drawing near, and Jesus is eating with them. This man, they're finger-wagging at him. This man receives sinners and eats with them. And in the ancient world, this is what, to eat with someone was the, one of the, this is the problem, to eat with someone was one of the deepest forms of acceptance. Even today, that's sort of the case. It's one thing, you know, I'll let you into my house and let you sit at my table. I'm sort of saying, you know, like, to everyone around, I'm okay, I'm okay with this person. That was much more true 
in the ancient Near East. And so they're grumbling about him. And the, the finger waggers, the Pharisees and the religious elite are they're grumbling and saying, look, Jesus has such a low view of sin. How could he be God in the flesh? He has such a low view of sin that he is endorsing these people's lifestyle. He needs to take a hard line against these people because they've sinned against God. And so Jesus answers them with a parable. And in this parable, there are two sons. That's how verse 11 starts out. There was a man who had two sons. And in a very subtle and not so subtle way, Jesus is he's functionally saying, look, there are two ways of running from God. Sin wears two faces, not just one. And so the parable starts with a younger son who asks for his inheritance. His hard, his father's hard-earned wealth, and he's asking for it while his father's still alive. And that's unheard of in the ancient world. By asking for his inheritance, he's saying functionally, Dad, I, I wish you were dead. I want your stuff. I don't want you. And if I have to choose my inheritance over you, I would rather act as if you were dead and take your things and run with them. We have record of one man making such a request and his father beat him to death. And so Jesus is like, he's saying, look, sin's not just an abstract rule. There's a real relational component to it. The core problem of sin defined this way is not that we are breaking some list of abstract rules out there, but that at the heart of all of our problems is that we want God's things instead of him. And the guilt comes, sin causes guilt and shame because I've broken God's law because at the heart I want God's things instead of him. And so I don't want to follow his ways Shame comes because that reality comes crushing in on us, that there is a relational component to the way that I have lived my life. Our sin provokes God's wrath. It also deeply saddens Him. It has this personal, painful side to Him. It grieves God. And Jesus is saying sin is like a young Jewish boy who says to his father, I wish you were dead. I would rather have your things than you. And then he spirals down and leaves his father's house. We'll see in in next week probably that the older son has got the same attitude. He wants the father's things rather than the heart of the father. The father's joy doesn't become his joy. And Jesus is saying here in this beginning, he said, you want to know what sin is like? Sin is so serious that it leaves us in prison. It, the younger son goes looking for freedom and he ends up completely imprisoned by his desires. He, he starts off wealthy and he ends up desperately attached to another man who made him in the fields feed the pig which was just a desperate attempt to get rid of him. I mean, when you don't want someone around, you give him a job that no one wants to do. He's trying to unload himself from this man. And in verse 14, his squandering leaves him so in need that when famine hit, he has to hire himself 
out as a slave. And then he starts the story with his desires leading him to freedom. And he's so desiring that by the end he's willing to eat the pig's food. He goes after freedom apart from the loving constraints of his father and ends up imprisoning him. And Jesus is saying, this is what sin does. It never returns the promise when it's pursued. It always enslaves. But on the other hand, there's another son out there. This other son that's been, we are introduced to the story. There's two sons. And we hear the story of the younger son who goes after his desires and it leaves him in prison. But there's an older son. Sin has two faces. Because Jesus is also saying, look, sin is also like a Jewish boy who thinks he's someone because of what he's earned. The older son stays at home. He serves his father. And, and he does what the father asks. And if you've got your Bibles, we stopped at verse 24. But we read in verse 29 this. I never disobeyed any of your commands. But the motivation for his faithful obedience, you might want to put that in air quotes, the motivation is exposed when the younger son is embraced by the father and the older son stands outside and refuses to come in. And the father has to go out to him too and bring him back in. Because he, he too, in his religious obedience and his faithfulness to the Father, has used the Father's things against him to build for himself an identity. See, a religious obedience sometimes can just be driven by a desire to buy, find freedom by building for yourself and using God's ways to do it. Now, let's be honest, in our culture... The older brothers are celebrated. That should not be true in the church. I often say about Zion, here's my desire, here's my dream for Zion, that we would be a place where the prodigals felt welcomed and the older brothers felt challenged. That we'd all stand under the feet of the cross. But Jesus isn't just, this is never where Jesus takes us. He never just exposes, he always exposes sin, but he doesn't just ever leave us there. That would be, that would be cruel. That's what finger wagging Christianity does. This is what's wrong with you. Now let's go home. But that's not what Jesus does. That's not the heart of God. Because notice God ain't a finger wagger. Next, notice how Jesus, he redefines what redemption looks like, and it's very different than the typical approach. Jesus' way is unique. He is leveling the playing field and puts everyone in the same category. Older brother, younger brother, sinner, tax collector, religious Pharisee, all in the same category. All running away from God, all in need of God's pursuit. One author puts it this way. Jesus doesn't divide the world into the moral good guys and the immoral bad guys. He shows us that everyone is dedicated to a project of self-salvation using God and others to get power and control for ourselves. And here's God's response. Because both ways have a false assumption. And that false assumption is that God is unwilling to bless. So I've got to take control 
Because the only way to get blessings in this world is to either pursue it on my own in one way or another. But God is not, the heart of God is that he is kind. He's freely willing to embrace. And so the younger son comes to this realization that his downward spiral is miserable. But look at his solution. His solution is still self-focused. Verse 17, it's a little awkward. He comes to himself. He doesn't come to the Father. He comes to himself. I'm going to fix this. My life is spiraled out of control. I'm going to fix this. We might say he hits rock bottom at this point. He comes to his senses. He realizes life's not working out. So he goes back home with a plan. He's going to make an offer to my father. Let me work my way back into your favor. In the ancient world, he says, I want to be a hired servant. In the ancient world, there were three categories of household servant. There was a slave at the bottom. He didn't have any rights. The son at the top had all the rights and privileges. In the middle, there was a servant. He was a craftsman who worked and earned a wage. And he says, look, so I'm going to come back. And I want to earn my place back. I want to come back as a hired servant. And I want to earn my way back into your favor, back into your household. He's essentially planning to meet the father halfway. I've got this deal for you, Dad. You do your part. I'll do my part. Together we'll make this happen. We'll make this right. I mean, which of us doesn't think that way? I've made a mess. I need to clean it up. And there are some of you, I know there are some of you gathered here today who are keeping God at a distance until you can clean up your life. Maybe you were once a faithful Christian and you've fallen away. You want to come back, but you just can't seem to clean up your life enough to think now it's okay. You don't like the circumstances you find yourself in. You might be saying, not right now, later. God will have nothing to do with that kind of thinking. Look at what the Father does. He will not allow you to restore yourself because the Father does something remarkable in this story. He comes to the Son while the younger Son is still in his self-consumed state. We're familiar enough with the story in the Western world. The Father runs out, embraces the Son, throws him a party. We're familiar enough with it in our context that it sort of loses its punch. But you understand, in the ancient world, this was scandalous. And the father's reaction would have been like welcoming home a traitor. We actually have record of how difficult this would be. And we'll explore that in just a second. But this would have been uh, akin to, some of you are old enough to, to remember ticker tape parades after the heroes came home from World War II. They put out their lives on the line. They, were, they, they should have been celebrated. They, they had defeated the enemy. They had a right to be celebrated. But do you see the father's reaction here in this parable would be like welcoming home a traitor who had taken the tanks of the American army and the secrets of the American army straight to Hitler. And when Hitler had done his job... Um, then discarded the guy in no hope, so he comes back home, and then we threw him a ticker tape parade. 
He receives the hero's welcome. That's scandalous. That is grace. You don't get returned at the bottom in God's kingdom. When you come through Jesus, you get returned at the top. You get embraced and loved and rejoiced over. And God can do that because of the costliness of redemption. Jewish customs dictated that when a son had spent his family wealth amongst the Gentiles, and this younger son not only spent his family wealth amongst the Gentiles, but he was with the unclean animals, the pigs, in their stalls. He was filthy, and Jewish custom dictated that he had to be cut off from the community. And the custom went like this. He would have to go to the neighboring town and sit outside the walls and ask for his father to come out. The angry father then would wait, sometimes for weeks, to make the son feel the weight of shame while the community pushed him away. A ceremony meant to make him feel so ashamed that he would despair. And then he, then and only then, after this intense shaming ceremony, he would have to earn his way back to a place of service, but never honor. And that's where the story takes a shocking turn in verse 20. Notice the father notices him while he is a long way off. He's scanning the horizon for a son. Because he's looking to protect him from the shame that awaits. When the father sees the son, he runs out to him. And embraces the son. And you see what's happening in the ancient world. Dignified men with a great deal of wealth. As this man had who was a community leader. Don't run. That is not what a dignified man does. He walks very slowly. So everyone will honor him. And dignified men in the ancient Near East. Certainly don't hike up their long robes. Which would have been necessary for him to run. Because that would expose his legs. And That was not what dignified old men do. They walk slowly with honor so everyone will notice him. And you see what he's doing? He is shaming himself so that the son could be honored. He's absorbing the son's shame at great cost to him so that the son does not have to bear the penalty of shame for his sin. He's going to bear it for the son at great cost to him so the son could be honored. That's the cross. Jesus became sin for us. He was cut off. Now, our return to God no longer needs to be hindered by the shame of wanting God's things instead of him because the God we dismiss has provided protection from his own wrath by bearing it on the back of his son. That's the death and resurrection of Jesus. His death bearing 
our shame, his resurrection, giving us his honor so that our assurance of pardon read this way. Heirs of Christ. Co-heirs, Paul says later, with the Son. All that belongs to Jesus, now that belongs to us, both are ours. And as a result, the Father throws a party for this shameful younger son. He insists that the son be clothed with his best robes and to do so quickly. There's no preparation. I need to, you need to feel the weight of what you've done. No, put the robe on him quickly. I don't want anyone to see him in these wrecks quickly before he experiences any more shame. Put my honor on him. Put my rings on his fingers. Put my shoes on his feet. Restore him to honor and don't waste any time. That's why in Christ, God's grace always returns us to the top with his rejoicing. This is the third in three parables. All three end in this way. The angels, heaven is rejoicing that one once was lost is now found. That ain't a finger wagging God. And it's lavish. The younger son gets his father's rings, his father's robes, his father's sandals. He gets his fattened calf. You he wants to come home and earn his way up. Do you notice that his speech before the Father is cut off. Here's what he practiced. I've sinned against heaven and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, so make me a hired servant. All he gets out of his mouth is, I've sinned against heaven before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. It's as if the Father's grace just stops his mouth. Don't just stop there. This is not the economy that works in my household. You don't earn I just freely give. You see how it ends. It ends with the father having the last word. It is fitting to celebrate. It's the right thing to do. It's fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He's lost and is found. That's the only economy that works in God's house. It is only an economy of grace where he freely gives all the riches of Jesus to any who would ask. And maybe you're just a slight prodigal this week and you've kind of wandered away. God's bringing you back. Maybe you've been gone for decades. Maybe it's just a slight enough prodigal that you're like, this morning, I didn't even want to be here. But I drug myself in. It is only right that those who come by faith in Jesus be welcomed home with joy because Jesus tried a traitor's death so that you by faith could become a righteous son. That would be the greatest injustice for the Father not to rejoice over you. He's a God of justice. And if you're in Christ and Jesus has taken your sin and given you his status of righteousness, the Father has no other option but to rejoice over you because as Jesus is, so you are in this world. And see, we usually think two things. Either I'm sinless and valuable or I'm sinful and worthless. 
You see where the gospel comes in and says, no, you are sinful, and if you're in Christ, you're valuable at the same time. And you see the loving, shame, dissipating, honoring embrace of the Father is what finally brings about a change in his life. It's not the pain, it's the grace. It's not his failures, it's the grace of the Father that brings about a change. It unseats his selfishness. That's a Jesus that you can let into the really broken areas of your life. If you want to experience the power of the gospel, that's the, that Jesus you need to let into whatever you are keeping from him and others. Can you imagine coming into a waiting room and everyone there saying, I'm fine. I'm fine. Waiting room of the emergency room. I'm fine. There's nothing wrong with me. I can take care of myself. I think I can fix this. You'd wonder, why are you here? It's silly to pretend you're fine when you're a place where healing occurs. And at the foot of Jesus, the answer is never I'm fine. It's I'm, I'm really messed up. I'm really broken. I need you. And amongst God's people, it's, that's where we're all at. That's, there's just no sense in coming here and pretending that everything's okay with you. This is an emergency room where the king of glory is exerting the power of his grace to transform lives. But can you imagine coming into an emergency room and finding not only that you don't have to wait, that would be an amazing thing. But if they, when you walked in the room, they were celebrating over you like they do when you have, buy a birthday party at Chuck E. Cheese. You're like that. If you could walk into that emergency, you would never hesitate. That's the place I want to be. It is only right that we celebrate. For my son was once lost, but now is found. Welcome him with joy. Listen, the first time you're coming to Jesus or the thousandth time this week you found yourself wandering away and coming back. This is the Father's response. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, what great news this is for sin-broken people like us. And what tremendous news this is for a culture that only, for a city that only knows a finger-wagging God, God, please transform lives, our lives, the lives of people who need to hear this. What, God, there is, there is, this is unfathomable for us to believe that this God exists. Help our unbelief. Cause our ears to hear the sound of heaven rejoicing over those who are in Christ. Let us see your smile. Help us to believe again. And again. And again. And again. And again. We pray this in the Savior's name. Amen.